You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the former president of Global Research and Development Advisor, overseeing the drug discovery and development efforts of over 13,000 colleagues across the world. He is now a senior partner and a member of the board of directors of CureTech Health. Holding a PhD from the University of New Hampshire in organic chemistry, his latest book is titled Pharma and Profits, Balancing Innovation, Medicine, and Drug Prices. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. John L. Lemetina. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background in the pharmaceutical industry. Well, uh, I always knew I wanted to be involved in drug discovery research. And uh, after getting my PhD and postdocing for a couple of years down at Princeton, I uh, started working in the Pfizer labs in Southeast Connecticut in 1977. And uh, I stayed with Pfizer for 30 years, eventually becoming head of R&D, as you mentioned. And then after that, uh, in the last 14 or 15 years, I've been doing a couple of things. One has been serving on the board of uh, various biotech companies and trying to help uh, out with my expertise. And second, writing now with a third book uh, in the area of, uh, of what's involved in drug discovery and talking, trying to get facts out about the pharmaceutical industry and and uh, and the importance and, and critical nature of drug R&D. And uh, I do that not only in my books, but I also have a, a blog on Forbes that I routinely contribute to. So I, I tend to keep somewhat busy. Okay, um, so your latest book is titled Pharma and Profits, Balancing Innovation, Medicine and Drug Prices. In the introduction, you talk about how the pharmaceutical industry has fallen from being among the most admired to the most hated, despite pioneering research that has benefited hundreds of millions of people across the world. The COVID-19 vaccine rollout over the past year and a half or so has sparked much debate surrounding balancing big pharma profits with public health. So I wanted to start by asking you what factors you believe are behind this precipitous decline in the public perception of pharmaceutical companies with regards to favorability over the past few decades, and what you think, what, what impact do you think the vaccine rollout has had? Well, so a few, few people would remember probably, or maybe uh, were not even around uh, back in the late 90s, when not only was the pharmaceutical admired, it was the most admired of all the industries and Merck was was ranked the most admired company of all companies for seven straight years. And the industry, unfortunately, lost its way a little bit in the early 2000s. And, and that has stuck and has been very difficult, despite the fact that the industry has made an awful lot of changes with more transparency and a lot of uh, the great work that it does in, in terms of turning around that, that perception, uh, negative perception. Now, I have to say, I thought that the unbelievable response on all of biopharma uh, with respect to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic would help change things. And for a while it did. Uh, polls like the Harris poll, the Gallup poll show, showed that uh, the industry was generating the highest uh, uh, positive views as, as it had in, in, in two decades. And uh, that was gratifying to see and, and actually worthwhile. The pharmaceutical industry and will tend to focus on vaccines, but I think the, you also have to keep in mind the therapeutics that it would develop by companies and antibodies that would develop. This is a broad biopharma effort where these companies really uh, drop a lot of what they were doing to focus on on trying to get us out of the pandemic, and they succeeded 
behind our, uh, uh, wild, beyond our wildest dreams in all uh, seriousness. And, and there are estimates now that in the first 12 months that the vaccines were available, they, they saved uh, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in hospital costs and over a million lives just in the United States. Uh, and so that's been terrific. And I think the rollout has been great. And also, it's interesting to note how they were priced. Uh, there was uh, in June of uh, 2021, there was an article in the New York Times sort of saying, uh, or June of 2020, uh, New York Times basically saying, be careful what you wish for, because drug companies might spend, uh, might charge as much as $500 for uh, vaccinations against COVID-19. And it turned out to be uh, uh, far less than that. The most expensive vaccine here in the United States is Pfizer's at a total of uh, $39 for two doses and $19.50 for each booster afterwards. And so uh, uh, the industry did a great job uh, developing vaccines in record time. Therapeutics have come out in record time as well, and, and basically saving the lives of millions of people at, at a really modest cost. You know, people don't realize a couple of facts for you, Adi. One is that, at least here in the United States, the cost of the annual flu vaccine, particularly for those over 50, costs about 60 to $70, double what, what the uh, COVID vaccines are. Not only that, but the COVID vaccines are greater than 90% effective. If you can get 60% efficacy with your annual flu shot, uh, uh, that's a great year. Usually it's on the order of 50 or 55%. So these things are, are remarkably effective, uh, which I think is terrific. The other amazing thing in this country, uh, and who knows if it's true uh, elsewhere, is that we spend, as I said, $39 or $19.50 a shot for it. That's the most expensive vaccine for us. Moderna is a little bit less than that. Uh, and yet the, those companies or, or pharmacies, for example, that will uh, inject the shot get uh, double that amount. Amazingly, uh, uh, if you go to a local pharmacy, they get paid from the government uh, $42 for the COVID shot that the Pfizer guy gets only uh, 1954, which is stunning in my mind. The innovator, the, the people who developed all this uh, are getting less. So I think I think this tremendous, uh, tremendous job these companies did in bringing out the vaccines and therapeutics, a tremendous job in terms of how they price things. Uh, and, and basically, I think, uh, helped to, to slow down uh, the pandemic. Now we're dealing with variants, et cetera, but boy, uh, the, the advent of the vaccines was just a, a modern medical miracle. So um, despite all, all the success that you, you mentioned, do you think that the, the vaccine rollout has had a, a big, has will result in a big jump um, in terms of the, the public perception of the pharmaceutical industry? It did uh, uh, initially, but then there have been sort of some mischaracterizations, I would argue, that have knocked that down a, a little bit. So, uh, let me talk about a couple of, of things. Number one, when you have the vaccines, a lot of people, particularly in Europe, were complaining about how uh, Pfizer and Moderna did not uh, make the patents publicly available, that they held on to the intellectual property. And the companies were chastised for it. It would have been an unbelievable mistake if we were to do had done that for a couple of reasons. First of all, nobody really had the capacity to make these vaccines. So Pfizer at risk built uh, manufacturing facilities to make the vaccine to the capacity of 3 billion doses in the first year and 4 billion doses in the second year. Moderna was, was somewhat less than that, but nevertheless, uh, a tremendous amounts of vaccines that could be distributed to the world. If you had created a free-for-all with anybody being able to make the vaccines, you never would have had that rollout because 
and you've heard well about all the supply chain issues. Uh, there are over 100 components that go into the uh, Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines. If you suddenly open that up to everybody, you never would have been able to get the rollout. Everybody would have been fighting for raw materials, et cetera. And you couldn't have gotten as quick a rollout as, as we did with, with the, those two companies. That's, that's the first point. The second point is it wasn't as if uh, these companies ignored uh, the need in places uh, outside the uh, Western world. Uh, for these uh, vaccines. So, for example, Moderna has agreed and has, has already begun construction of an mRNA vaccine manufacturing facility in someplace in Africa. It could be South Africa, uh, but someplace in Africa that's going to take about 18 months to two years to complete. Shows you that how long it takes to do this sort of thing. But Pfizer also uh, gave uh, at cost the Biden administration uh, a billion doses of vaccine to be distributed in Africa. Uh, so that even though there was no intellectual property and even though they, had, they were dependent on it, they were getting uh, these vaccines at a far less cost than people were paying with in America and in Europe. So I think that's quite remarkable as well. And what people should have been spending their time on uh, was actually setting up distribution channels in a place like Africa for the vaccines, as well as overcoming vaccine hesitancy. It turned out that as these you know, billion dollars, a billion doses were, were getting ready to be shipped to uh, uh, Africa. Uh, suddenly, the country started saying, "Well, don't send all of them now because we're not getting the uptake we were hoping for. We're having trouble convincing people to take the vaccines, uh, and as well as distributing it." So, in any case, I think that what the industry did was terrific. Yet, what people are focused on. Uh, those who want to be negative were saying things like, well, you know, if, uh, if not everybody's vaccinated, you can't control the pandemic. Well, that's true. But controlling the pandemic by liberating uh, intellectual property would not have been the way to go forward to solve that problem. OK, um, so next I wanted to talk to you a bit about drug pricing. So U.S. drug prices are well known as being the highest in the world. And we've all heard stories about people crossing the border to get common medication like insulin from Canada or Mexico at a substantial discount. So there are a lot of conflicting theories out there speculating as to why this is the case, with many blaming Big Pharma for gouging customers or a failure of public policy to effectively regulate the drug market. So as someone who's been on the other side of this discussion, I wanted to get your take on what's behind the high drug prices in the United States relative to the rest of the world and what you make of theories to blame profiteering and, and corporate greed. So uh, it's amazing to talk about corporate greed here uh, on something like this. So there's no doubt in the United States, we pay more for our drugs than elsewhere in the world. That's because of the convoluted system we have in this country for pricing drugs. And I'll talk about insulin specifically uh, in a second. But, you know, people focus on drug prices because that's what they see. They don't necessarily see the price of, of hospital costs and hospital care. So in the United States, uh, Basically, four, 12, 13 to 14% of the overall healthcare bill in the United States is devoted to drugs. And that's all drugs. That's not just brand name medications. That's also generic medications. So you total less than 14% along the way. Everything else is hospitals, doctors, uh, procedures, et cetera. Well, it turns out that something as simple as a hip replacement in this country costs about $40,000. Cost of the hip replacement in France is $10,000. And a place like Poland is $2,500. And that's just not hip replacement. That's all hospital procedures. In fact, everything 
and the United States costs more in terms of healthcare than other places in the world. The irony that it focuses on drug prices uh, is, is unfortunate because if you take drugs, it keeps you out of hospitals or all of the other expensive care that you have out there. The other point is that drugs go generic. You know, you have you pay a price for 12 or 14 years, but then it goes generic and the price drops to almost nothing. So uh, the statins, which are, are some of the most prescribed drugs now in the world, uh, and, and they're all generic, cost pennies a pill. So the cost drops through the floor once the patent expires. Price of, of MRIs or price of hip replacements does not go down. It goes up 5 to 10% every year. So the drug costs, even in the United States, is a big bargain. Now, let's talk about insulin because I think that shows you how crazy our current system here in the United States is. What everybody tends to focus on in the United States is list prices. So in the United States, you have a list price, which is what a company negotiates with the insurance companies and the pharmaceutical benefit managers, et cetera. So you have a certain cost, a list price. The fact of that matters, once the negotiation starts, the drug companies get a lot less money. They, they will get uh, 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 what's called the net price. In fact, for insulin, the net price in five years has not gone up. The list price has, and that's because uh, insurance companies like to have a high list price uh, for those members of their uh, healthcare plan who have to make co-pays or have high deductibles. And they don't give back any of the negotiated uh, discounts that the drug companies give them. So the drug companies are getting blamed for these insulin prices, which is not really uh, uh, their fault uh, in, in theory. It's really the fault of the system along the way. You know, Bernie Sanders famously took a busload of people to insulin uh, to get their insulin in Canada. The fact of the matter is, and there's, there's legislation now uh, trying to be passed in the United States to cap a person's uh, out-of-pocket insulin costs to $35 a month, which I support wholeheartedly. I think that would be a great move. Fact of the matter is 75% of people in the United States already pay $35 or less uh, uh, out-of-pocket for their insulin, depending on their health care plan and the insurance that they have. The people who are getting screwed in the United States uh, and paying a lot more for their insulin are people uh, who don't have insurance. Believe it or not, there are 10% of the U.S. population who are, don't have health care insurance, which I think would be mind-boggling to people in Europe. So they don't get, they weren't part of Obamacare and the new health care laws, et cetera. So as a result, they're part of the 25% who are paying a lot more for their uh, insulin. Fact of the matter is uh, most of insulin, and then insulin isn't insulin. Another thing I hear is that, well, you know, insulin has been known for 100 years. What people are talking about that is not the insulin that was used for the first 60 years of insulin, which was pig insulin. It's not the insulin that was used, uh, human insulin that was synthesized uh, 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 by Genentech back in the 80s and 90s. These are totally new molecules. They're really analogs of insulin that work better than either animal or human insulin and give far better control, far fewer side effects, no weight gain, et cetera. Uh, but even these drugs are now going generic. Biosimilars are now coming onto the market. So it's a, it's not as big a problem as people make it out to be. And, and will probably within another 12 to 18 months uh, be uh, uh, not dealt with much anymore due to the generic uh, availability biosimilars of, of these new insulin forms. Um, okay, um, but then again, what about the the rest of the drugs? I mean, I, I understand that um, our even our hospital bills are, are higher um, as, as compared to the rest of the world. But is there something specific that's driving the the high drug prices? Um, you know, perhaps factors that we don't see. 
Well, you're dealing with a whole healthcare situation where the actual price that people, that insurance companies and pharmaceutical benefits managed pays are largely hidden. Those are looked upon as, as secrets. It was, it was very revealing when Sanofi came out and talked about their insulin analog uh, a couple of months ago and showed that the amount of money they're getting is no different now than five years ago. And yet the perception is these prices are high. Uh, we had a great example here in the United States with uh, hepatitis C drugs, which initially were came out and were charged $1,000 a pill. But that was the initial list price. The fact of the matter is I was at a meeting one time where the pharmaceutical benefits manager of uh, Cardinal Healthcare, I believe it was, basically stood up and talked about how, in fact, the United States was paying less for the hepatitis C drugs than we're paying in, in the United Kingdom and in Germany. Uh, and, and so you were curing a disease here with these drugs at a, at a price that was less than what previous treatments would, would were not even good enough to cure the disease, but were, were tried. So again, uh, what you're talking about are list prices. You're not talking about Net prices, you're not talking about the actual prices that people pay. Uh, there is no doubt that with all the other costs, you're paying far more in hospital costs in these countries than uh, than other places. Okay, um, so many politicians in the Democratic Party have called for a Medicare for all single single payer system that would enable the government to collectively bargain with pharmaceutical companies and bring down prices for consumers. But opponents of the bill claim it will stifle innovation. So, Dr. Lamatina, um, what impact do you think the adoption of a single-payer system in the United States would have on innovation? Um, and do you believe that the trade-off is worth it? So, the first, you have to appreciate that 25% of all the money a pharmaceutical company makes is plowed back in research. So, if a pharmaceutical company had sales of $10 billion, just so I can do the math easily, uh, billion of those dollars will go right back into research. This isn't profits. This is top-line revenues. Anything you do to top-line revenues of a company will impact how much money goes into research, period. So it doesn't matter. uh, And a lot of Democrats in this country will claim that, well, it's not going to have that big an impact on innovation. Of course, it's going to have an impact on innovation. It's also going to have an impact on jobs. Uh, I'm going to give you a hard example here. When I was running R&D at Pfizer, uh, we had the Lipitor patent uh, loss and revenues were going to be uh, hit dramatically as a result of that. Uh, The CEO decided that we had to right-size the company and and to decrease uh, across the board, including research. I, to, to, to maintain what I wanted to do, I was going to need, because uh, we had a lot of compounds in late stage development, I was going to need a 10% increase uh, to the budget to, to maintain things. So to go from $5 billion a year to $5.5 billion a year, not only did we not get that increase, but we had to take a 10% cut in, in our R&D budget. Well, somebody said, all right, well, 10%, you know, suck it up. Well, the way we had to suck it up was basically to close research sites. We closed sites, in, two sites in France. Uh, in, in Japan, uh, drastically downsized our facility in the United Kingdom, and we closed a 2,200-person uh, research site in Ann Arbor, Michigan, the legacy uh, Warner Lambert Park Davis site. That's a lot less jobs, created a lot of ter- turmoil. We also had to get out of a lot of therapeutic areas. We got out of antibacterial research, CNS research, uh, diabetes research, heart research, et cetera. That's did innovation go out, go away from Pfizer? Absolutely not. Was there less of it with fewer scientists? Absolutely. And so that's the kind of devastating effect that a, that a basically a, a 10%, actually an amount of a 20% uh, 
uh, uh, cut in our budget uh, uh, was cost. It was pretty devastating. Okay. Um, so besides uh, a transition to a single payer system, um, there, there have been quite a few other proposals, you know, um, Obamacare, uh, you know, just a public option. I'm, I'm sure the Republicans have proposed some plans as well. We had the ACHA a, a couple of years back. Um, I, I think most of most of these um, would, uh, according to um, your your last answer, um, you know, if they affect top line revenues, they're going to have a negative impact on innovation. Uh, is there any sort of public policy um, approach or, or any legislation you think Congress could pass that would bring down prices for customers without um, having an impact on the innovation? So, so first of all, uh, there are a couple of things. Number one, I think uh, the use of generic drugs has to be uh, more rigorously done here in this country. Uh, amazingly, uh, there are still sales of, of certain drugs like Lipitor that uh, uh, you can easily get a Torvastatin, which costs pennies, a uh, pennies a pill. And, and so I pick on that one, but it could be any, maybe because there are 120 million uh, Lipitor prescriptions or Torvastatin uh, prescriptions and everything. A, a vigorous use of, of generics, not only in small molecules, but also uh, uh, the FDA working pretty hard and it's doing a better job now of taking drugs that are uh, uh, bio, uh, biologics and creating the generic versions of those biosimilars. Those are some of the most expensive drugs that are out there and getting more approvals of, of, of uh, biosimilars for these expensive drugs, I think would do wonders in terms of lowering uh, the overall uh, bill for uh, drugs in, in this country. Okay, um, so you you mentioned um, in the book how certain policy changes, such as requiring pharmaceutical companies to report the results of all clinical trials to the public within 12 months, as well as payments to physicians, um, have been implemented in, in response to, to backlash and, and a dropping um, perception of the industry. So uh, I wanted to ask you if there are any further policy changes you would recommend that would that, that might help improve the, the public perception of the pharmaceutical industry. So specific, not specifically prices, um, but rather the way the public views the, the industry. I think I think the industry needs to tell its story better than it than it does now. And that was part of the reason for pharma and profits. Uh, you know, you want people in this country and throughout the world, really, to understand the truth behind what's going on. So when when Bernie Sanders takes a bustle to people to Canada and says this is a drug that's been known for 100 years and and, and these pharmaceutical companies are, are murderers because people can't afford their their insulin. Well, that's not true. Uh, what, what this, this is not the insulin of 100 years ago. This is a totally different molecule, which even now you are, are, are going generic. And so you should be able to get generic pricing for all this. Having, uh, having these pharmaceutical benefit uh, managers being forced uh, to, to prescribe not brand name drugs, but to, where they get a big cutback and they get a, uh, a lot of money as a result of these, but form, forcing them to use biosimilars I think would would help alleviate that problem. But I, but I talk about all sorts of, of of things in this book. I talk about the value that drugs bring and the and, and teaching that these drugs are valuable. So when the hepatitis C drugs came out, rather than saying we now have a cure for a disease that is the leading cause of liver cancer and 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 liver deaths in this country, and and you need a liver transplant to survive, and liver transplants can cost on the order of three to four hundred thousand dollars per patient in this country. 
Uh, even at $1,000 a pill or an $80,000 treatment, these drugs are a bargain. In fact, the actual prices now have come down to $25,000. So curing hepatitis C for $25,000 is, is uh, uh, really a medical miracle in so many ways. And yet, all people fo- focused on was a pill that cost $1,000, at, at which was the list price at the initial launch. I think people did a bad job in describing the value of these medicines uh, and, and the importance of of uh, innovation in dealing with some of these diseases. So, yeah, I think one thing that um, you know, there that, that might be causing this sort of public perception issue, and correct me if I'm wrong here, um, is, well, as, as I understand it, at least, um, the, the pharmaceutical um, industry um, tends to operate quite differently from, you know, most other industries in the sense that um, there, there's a very high um, fixed cost and a very low variable cost of providing these drugs. So the actual pill, um, you know, manufacturing one additional pill might not cost, but you know, anything near a thousand dollars. But all the money that's been spent, not only on researching and developing this one pill, but on all the other, um, you know, failed medications and and all the other failed um, research um, ventures that led to the development of this one, right? So I'm guessing if a pharmaceutical company is investing, you know, several billion dollars in researching a dozen or several dozen projects, you know, on average, maybe only a couple of those will, will actually pan out and result in something coming to market. Um, so the the thousand dollar price of that drug doesn't reflect the cost to manufacture just one pill, um, you know, just the additional variable cost of that one pill. Um, it has a much greater, um, you know, fixed cost built into it that I, I don't think um, people fully understand or, or appreciate. So do you think that's, that's, you're exactly right. Uh, the arguments I make in drug pricing are the drugs have to add value and then people should pay for the value that that drug brings. Now, why should people pay for the value? Well, the, the things you just said. So, uh, there are estimates from academic institutions like Tufts that say that to go from an idea to bringing a new drug through FDA approval and marketing costs on the average of $2.6 billion per drug. So that's a tremendous amount of sunk costs into a program. These programs will tend to take 10 to 12 years, my idea, to getting all the way through, unless you're in a pandemic where uh, everybody is focused and working only on, on your vaccines or something like that, and, and you're working hand in glove with the FDA. But nevertheless, $2.6 billion per new drug. And you're right, for every 10 drugs you put in, not, not just that you, do, you work on in the laboratory, but that you actually put into clinical trials, only one comes out, one in 10. So there's high cost investment to do this, a uh, uh, high, high, uh, a, a lack of, of uh, a survivability and a high attrition rate that goes into these things. And if you want to have the funds to invest back in R and D and to come up with the next vaccine or to come up with the next antibiotic or the next drug to treat cancer, uh, you, you have to raise the capital to do that. Having said that, just because you discover a new drug doesn't mean you should be able to charge whatever you want for it. It's, it should be based on the value that brings to the healthcare uh, uh, system. And, and so uh, when you combine all three, I think you come up with some very reasonable pricing for these drugs that, that uh, most people don't appreciate. Okay, um, so there's been a lot of buzz lately with Mark Cuban's latest venture in the drug space with his company called Cost Plus Drugs that promises to provide common medications at significantly lower prices. So I wanted to ask you how this is possible and whether or not you think this venture will be a success. Oh, I, not only I think it's success. I hope very much it will be successful. You know, the industry unfortunately got a black eye from uh, Martin Shirelli, who 
licensed uh, and bought a, a access to a drug called Daraprim, which is used to to treat uh, a, a certain type of uh, toxic, a, a parasitic infection in people with depressed immune systems. And and most people are not susceptible to this parasite. But if you have a depressed immune system, you can, and it can be fatal. And this drug cost basically a dollar a pill when GSK was selling it, or maybe $2 a pill. And then GSK sold off uh, uh, the rights to this compound to another company, and they raised the, the price to like $12 a pill. Well, uh, and this was a, this is a drug that's been over 70 years, and it was generic and it was cheap. Well, Shirelli bought the company and then raised the price to $750 a pill. And, and it, it caused tremendous uh, 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 negative uh, pushback against the whole industry. And and this this was just one rogue operator who did this and got away with it. Any generic drug shouldn't have to cost shouldn't cost twelve dollars a pill, much less seven hundred fifty dollars a pill. What what Cuban is doing, I think, is is great. So he's going into looking for uh, situations like this where uh, you need more uh, generic drugs in a certain category, and and then as he said, charging uh, basically cost plus fifteen percent for that, which is which is how the system is supposed to work out. Once a drug loses its patent, the, the, the path that these companies have uh, with, with patients and, and payers and governments is that the price the price goes down and any generic company can make it and, and, and uh, charge very low amounts for the drug. That's the deal. And when the deal falls apart, then, then we've got issues. And it certainly fell apart with the case of of uh, Martin Shirelli, and uh, I think that Cuban will prevent uh, situations like that from happening in the future. Okay, so finally, I want to finish off by asking if there was anything that you learned or any trends that you observed in researching or writing this book that were especially surprising to you or that you didn't expect. Uh, no, because I've been dealing with these issues now for 15 years. Uh, what surprised me, well, I, I guess one surprise has, has been that when you when the, when the biopharmaceutical industry performed magnificently, you, you couldn't ask for anything better in terms of all the, the, the drugs and, and the treatments that have come out that really have, have made a difference in people's lives. That, I thought, would really turn the tide for the industry. And it did to a certain extent in terms of, of having the industry thought of in, in, a, in a much more favorable light. Now I start reading some authors saying things like, well, you know, there was really no risk. In, in a company like Pfizer uh, going after uh, the mRNA, uh, mRNA vaccine because the government uh, gave them billions of dollars. Well, that's not true. Pfizer didn't accept a penny from uh, the, uh, the FDA, uh, from the uh, US government, from Operation Warp Speed, et cetera. Pfizer, at its own risk, decided to invest in a totally unproven technology, a technology that, that our, our uh, guru, here, uh, vaccine guru uh, Anthony Fauci said, if this was sixty percent uh, effective, he thought it would be terrific. And and Pfizer, at risk, invested uh, in building plants and building production facilities uh, around the world, put up two billion dollars, uh, and it could have failed. And and you know the, the uh, National Geographic uh, did a documentary about this, and they were actually in the room when the Pfizer leadership team heard about the vaccine and how their jaws dropped how, at the results. Uh, and how effective it was. Uh, it was a real game changer. But the result in that meeting could have been different. The call could have been, we've done the analysis and it's only about 20 or 25% effective. And that would have been the end of it and the loss of a $2 billion investment. But more importantly, it, it would have had a devastating effects on, on trying to stop the pandemic. So 
when all this great work happened and, and, you know, people now are belittling it or saying, uh, you know, the real research was done in academia, which is not true. Uh, and, and these companies only manufacture the thing. I mean, uh, you know, belittling uh, this, this magnificent achievement really surprised me and uh, continues to surprise me, which shows the need for a book like Farmer and Profits. Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Lamadina. Thanks for having me. Cool. Um, Dr. John Lamatina's latest book is titled uh, Pharma and Profits, Balancing Innovation, Medicine, and Drug Prices, available on Amazon, Google. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.